I love that. Recording Under- in progress. The like underground, the 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 tube voice. Please mind the gap. Recording yeah, right. in progress. I wonder that's if right. it's British in England. It'd be hilarious. Well, I think British voices are supposed to sound smart in they, the U.S., but I I don't it, have the the uh, the feeling that American voices sound smart in the U.K. <laughs> they they <laughs> they do not. <laughs> it's like you take the ultimate like Wild West uneducated mentality, and that's like what I perceive our accent sounds like. Yeah. Especially like West Coasters. Dude, what's up, man? Bruh. Bruh. So, Drew. Yo. This fine morning, we are going to talk about something that you had a cool idea to talk about. And that is... Form. Form. Yeah. Okay, so when you first said that, here's what my brain did. Oh, goody. I suck at this. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. So at BYU, Idaho, I was in Theory 1, then Theory 2, and then I went on my mission for two years, came back and did Theory 3 and Theory 4. Yeah. Before my mission, Theory 1 and Theory 2, they taught form in Theory 3. Mm-hmm. And then while I was on my mission, they changed the curriculum, and then they started teaching form during Theory 2. Oh, wow. You timed it just right. And so I literally took a big, huge two-year just jump right over form. And, like, <laughs> we kind of did it. Like, we, we talked about what you would expect to think about when you th- – when when most musicians who've been trained in the universities or whatever or in a theory class think about form, they think about, oh, sonata allegra form or whatever. Yeah. I know that one. And then I – but the I think what you're referring to is a much more broad sense of form, and it's something that I'm a novice to and been thinking a lot about as I kind of compose some things, but it is not something that jumps to my mind of, ooh, I love form. Well, I don't know anybody who loves form, but... uh, (laughs) Fair. I mean, that would be weird. That would be weird. But I had maybe a a different experience, but maybe a similar outcome where I did take the form and analysis class. And I think I got even got a good grade and we obsessed over... Oh, thanks. Thanks, Cameron. And do you know how much of a difference a good grade in in a class makes in the rest of your life? You are an expert in (laughs) form. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) No, I, uh, so I, you know, I took a class, read the book, listened to all the examples, yada, 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 yada. And it was basically running through a list of templates. You have like a strophic form or through composed or paratactic form or binary or ternary or blah, 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 blah. And they're all fine because in a way they're, they're useful. They're descriptive. Um, but 
I I think they they fall in that broad category of musical taxidermy that I tend to throw under the bus with with a lot of other theory, which is like it just sort of like it kills it and mounts it on the on the mantelpiece, and you're like, ah, yes, well, let us dissect this and we'll we'll tell you what it is, but it doesn't really tell you very much about how it works and what makes it alive. Hmm. And I, especially later, that pterodactyl form, the pterodactyl form, pterodactyl form, yeah, the pterodactic. I mean, what a dumb I've word. never even heard of that. So yeah. clearly, I anyway continue. I think it's essentially the same as through composed, but um, but anyway, later I was I, I was listening to Billy Collins talk about poetry, and as a side note, I feel like I learned more about music by studying other creative disciplines oftentimes mm. than I do about studying music itself. But it's super fascinating. I but also also not really that outlandish, I guess, if you really think about it. Anyway, we can talk about that. I'm yeah. sure we could go on on a whole other episode about that, but keep going. Well, I mean, I think we've learned about music is such an abstract art form to begin with you know, mm. it just it disappears the instant that it's happening in live live music yeah and it and it it's spun out of these super abstract symbols of little dots and things that take a lot of training to interpret right um, that sometimes i think that the easiest way to learn about those things is to learn by analogy you know you look at a painting that just sits there forever on the wall and you can stare at it and keep thinking about it but for music it's like gone by the time you're yeah, that's interesting. Processing it. I mean, score study, but anyway, so Billy Collins was talking about poetry and he said, form is what keeps a poem from falling apart. <laughs> and never have I heard a definition of form that I like better than that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just straight up truths. Because form isn't, I mean, at some level form is like, a B A. <laughs> right. That's not really what form is. Form mm. is what keeps something from falling apart. It's what like makes it alive. Yeah. It, and then you know Well, it kind of like sets even what no matter how you define a specific piece of art, in this case music, no matter how you define that form, form more broadly is like how that it's it's the the blueprint of how that piece is going to work so it's not even it's it's what keeps it together but aba is a is one way that composers throughout time have kind of said hey this is how we can kind of do a formula version of keeping this piece together yeah the other thing is that the ideas that you get out of a form and analysis class, like, well, okay, look for the recapitulation. Oh, here's the second theme, all this kind of stuff. They, they work well for music that's like instrumental music, maybe like Baroque and after or something like that. Right. Um, that's where they, we started seeing these templates over and over again. But 
they don't necessarily apply super well to early music because right. people weren't talking about those templates right. yet. Besides right. which, the early music was tended to be uh, words. And yeah. the text itself, in many ways, is the form. Yeah. Um, and I feel like uh, trying to ask the question of what keeps something from falling apart, <laughs> that question, though, applies like in any century. And yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Well, and it there's something about well, and if you think about it, it's it's kind of the same, not kind of. It is the same concept to me as counterpoint itself, mm-hmm. where it's kind of an abstract concept if you think about it, and it's not necessarily templated, formulaic, and it's just like. You can just plug and play, plug and play. Okay, copy, paste, copy, paste. Oh, this is X, this is Y. But you know good counterpoint when you see it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it has to be... Counterpoint isn't polyphony, per se, but but you know good counterpoint. It's sometimes hard to define. I think that what I'm hearing from you is that form is somewhat similar in its concept of it's not necessarily this very concrete clearly defined thing of a b a or uh, strophic or this is you know rounded binary or this is rondo form especially when you talk about early music it's it's much more loosely defined but it's very clear in okay but this piece holds together really well so formally why is that Yeah, kind of thing, right? Yeah. Well, I think you could have like a really inane, stupid piece of music that has all the hallmarks of a, like you said, rounded binary form or rondo <laughs> or something like that. And, and you say, yes, but it's stupid. And <laughs> you know what it's, I mean? Like, yeah. And so it's like the, the, the markers that we use to describe form are, well, I don't know, like, like necessary but not sufficient to tell us anything about the like the vital underlying forces that make it a worthwhile right. Piece <laughs> and that's that's where I'd rather swim is down in that mm. territory. If I'm going to spend, you know, I mean, listen, I'm 40. That means that like <laughs> I'm halfway done with my life. And wow. If I'm going to spend any minutes of the remaining 40 some odd years, depending on my genes and all this kind of stuff, (laughs) I don't want to spend it doing formal diagrams, like swimming surface level. I want to get down into the guts of what makes something not fall apart, what makes it like vital and powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I, wow. Well, when you say it like that, I mean... (laughs) I don't even know if I have a response to that. Well, <laughs> coming up on the end of my life here. Don't <laughs> waste my time. <laughs> but I think that that's well, and I remember I remember thinking too about I don't know, and this is in in no way a, a criticism, but I remember studying with Doctor Staley, and he would have us do he would have us diagram out pieces of music on graph paper. Mm -hmm. 
and and you know each each box of the graph paper was a measure mm-hmm. and so then different colors were different voices mm-hmm. and when you and and you arc like different phrase lengths and then you mark cadences and you mark big phrase and periods and and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and then you put the text underneath it and i don't think that activity locked us into you know, rounded binary or th- this kind of templated form, formal analysis. Um, but I don't know if I had the tools to to do it justice, how it could have been done. Mm. Because I think you could make it a diagram like that with a, a piece from the Renaissance even and and even see how the lines intertwine really clearly of okay this phrase goes to here then rest this phrase goes to here oh look at how they overlap it might be a really cool visual exercise for someone studying polyphony or or whatever i i just was still trapped in the oh look phrase mark oh this is a okay now this is b and i kind of ended up using it as that same kind of thing even though I don't know if it necessarily had to be, but it was another thing, like you said, graphing out this very clear form, form. form. I don't think there's anything wrong with graphing. I mean, I when I'm, right. when I'm writing a piece, very often I'm making all kinds of like little graphs and pictures and things to try to explain to myself, okay, how is this section going to be different from that section? And mm-hmm. propor- proportionally, which one is longer or louder or whatever yeah and um any i think any kind of analysis gets you below the surface yeah and labeling things can be really helpful because then you say oh wait that thing came back ah yeah that must be important and when it comes back it comes back in the context of our memory knowing having heard it once and so now when it comes back it's different in our ears or something like that yeah that's all cool and i don't want to throw any of that under the bus i no, I guess, no me neither i i i just think that it's it, depending on the paradigm that you're coming from those graphs and things can serve a very different purpose i think yeah. is kind of my point but yeah what were you gonna yeah. say no, I just think it's just kind of keep continuing to ask the question of like, what what makes this thing hold together? Yeah. That, what makes it fresh and, and vital and alive? That's, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So going back to a previous conversations where we talk about something being primal, mm-hmm. I think this is a thought that just popped into my head, little light bulb. That's actually what it sounded like. That was really weird. It was the same pitch. So the uh, the golden ratio, the golden mean, right? Yeah. That's like a really and and you think about the the Fibonacci sequence and the the whatever the spiral. Whose spiral is it? What spiral is it? I can't remember. Hmm. the conch shell thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I, always, I always just heard that as the Fibonacci sequence, but... Oh, it is. Yeah. Anyway, how does that... So where did that... I, I guess I probably should have looked it up, but that sort of thing seems like a very primal... The This sequence and these numbers exist way 
beyond just like a man-made thing. This is clearly some sort of cosmic natural phenomenon that we gravitate towards. What? How do you see that playing into this concept of holding things together? That's an interesting question. I feel like music is equal parts um the material that we we receive from nature and mm. what we do with it is sort of you know it's this arm wrestle between physics and aesthetics mm. and uh for example you know physics gives us the overtone series right you know, that, that's just an, that's just a property of the natural world right um and the overtone series basically gives us what we call our perfect consonances yeah you know octaves fifths fourths um but then the third which is not uh you know it is present in the the overtone series but it's complex and it's shaded in a hundred different directions in practice that's that's kind of a a man-made yeah <laughs> Phenomenon. yeah, and yeah I interesting about, i think about like um okay so we're look we're staring at each other in zoom right now and right. Our, our faces you know like the basic proportion of our faces is a creation of nature right you know like right. Our, our eyes are not halfway in the middle of our head yeah they're about hmm. a third you know it's about yeah. a third and when you look at some of my favorite books are um, books about drawing. Like there's this book called making comics that is, Oh wow. Um, it's like, I mean, it's as much philosophy as it is like art and design. That's but cool. It, it kind of, it spends a lot of time just noticing those um, proportions that apply across the board. How many yeah. head, how many heads, tall mm. is a body right and it's so interesting to think about and and you know cartoonists and artists know these kinds of tricks um when you if you're a cartoonist and you have to draw the same character for however many frames in a row you yeah. have to know about the basic proportions of the character and, and they they use a yardstick like heads in order to make sure that the body is a consistent height and so you think about how that plays out in sculpture and uh, or painting and, you know, you, you start looking at what what became of art through and after the Renaissance and say, oh, OK, there's something about perspective that either appears to be real on the canvas or is definitely not real and they hadn't <laughs> quite figured that out or they're doing it on purpose. Right. Uh, there's something about a human figure carved out of marble that either looks plausible or it doesn't. And why is that? Yeah. Um, or or not, not only plausible, but elegant. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's something about that here. Like, so when we talk about the Fibonacci sequence, we talk about the golden mean, those are phenomena or relationships or patterns that we inherit from nature but you say why is it you know in so many pieces of music that at about two-thirds of the way through you have a natural climax in the narrative yeah. arc 
Yeah, totally. What if it just feels exactly right? I mean, it's the same thing with like our story archetypes, you know, the hero's journey, right? right? And you have these rising action towards a climax and then a denouement and all this kind of stuff. And, right. um, you know, we're, we're clever creatures, but we actually only have a handful of archetypal um, templates. Right. And I think that, well, when you, when you say it like that too, you can, you can, you recognize it in music that seemingly has no form. Mm. And that came before, long before, even if you talk about, so in the Renaissance, you, you talk about some of these dance forms that existed, the ballad and, and all this stuff that it was still so like, um, kind of primitive in its conception with what our common practice minds think about form Mm -hmm. and those mostly existed in secular music, but you can see that this kind of primal moving towards the two thirds quadrant Mm -hmm. for climactic occurrences was inherent even then. And if you think about, you know, a piece like Du Fai, Nuper Rosarum Flores, where it's like, okay, this is going to mimic the proportions of Solomon's temple. Mm-hmm. You have these isorhythmic motets, and form was like not even close to the same concept as common practice form, but mm-hmm. but more, almost, well, I would say equally present in the forefront of their minds of, okay, well, these rhythms are going to be this long. And then we're gonna do, <clears throat> excuse me. Then we're gonna do the same rhythmic ratios within itself, but it's gonna be, you know, four, two thirds rhythmic length, metric length of the section before, mm-hmm. and then we're gonna cut that proportion in half. And then, like, they clearly had this. And then even when you get out of that kind of late medieval into the height of the Renaissance with this kind of what we pers- what most people think of as this kind of free-flowing counterpoint of Palestrina and Victoria mm-hmm. it still has that form though and it's it's not con- conceived the same it's mm-hmm. not put into practice the same but it holds together just as well and it moves to this point and it falls from that point and and how do they how do they navigate that when it's this kind of free species counterpoint well, it makes me think actually a little bit about Bartok, who on the far end of the common practice templates was sitting there and asking himself, okay, how am I going to make something that holds together that isn't <laughs> writing to template? Right, right. Not, not that anybody was always just sitting there writing to template, but, you know, he's like, okay, how am I, how am I going to make music that's totally coherent? that isn't that and right you think i mean he has this reputation for being hyper mathematical and working very deliberately with mapping out the um golden mean and all these sort of like nested proportions and i feel like you know his music comes from a different galaxy obviously than the stuff that we tend to talk about but talk about holding together i mean it's just this sort of like watertight construction yeah um and something holds it together 
you know, and I think that's, that's really interesting and cool. But when I, you know, after having learned words like, um, rounded binary and right all this kind of stuff through composed ever i don't use those words very much anymore i right i like i mean i, I wrote a piece once and somebody said well what's the form i said well salad form <laughs> rabbit food come on <laughs> well, no it's like i'm a just bunch, kidding <laughs> a bunch of bright a bunch of brightly colored things that i like that i chopped up and mixed together nice does it does it hold together or does it not hold together? Right. Um, and, you know, maybe if you zoom out, you're just like, oh, well, yeah, it's sort of an ABA form. I'm like, fine. Okay. Sort of an ABA form. It just tells me nothing. Right. So, so then what makes up? So what are some elements then? If we're going to, if we're going to kind of redefine or reclassify what we think of as form, kind of breaking down the barriers of common practice uh, verbiage of mm -hmm. form. What are some elements that you think determine that form? Well, one thing would be counterpoint. If you're looking at music that is contrapuntal and you say, okay, what are the, you know, as, as Philip Lasser would say, what are the contrapuntal motives, like the key? Mm stitch patterns and how do they recur that can yeah. tell you a lot about why something holds together that's one tool in the toolbox mm, so what does uh, that what does that look like what do you think that looks like like contrapuntal stitch patterns i think i have an idea of what that might look like that's really cool concept well he would i mean we could we could look at some bach if you want to but the um he, he describes it as a you know four three four five note unit mm. that is um, made up of stepwise material so it's a linear unit and you might have something that goes up or goes down or goes up and then down or down and then up or whatever yeah it has some kind of implicit metrical property also is it like on the beat off the beat leading to the beat whatever and when you look at contrapuntal mu music that holds together really tightly very often that the, that little contrapuntal motive ends up explaining or becoming the DNA that explains a lot of the formal aspects of the piece, large mm. and small. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm sure you could break that down and and um, develop that sort of motif uh, metrically, melodically, harmonically, mm -hmm. right, to kind of make it to give it more depth, but that's then still fabric that's holding things together. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And, and that's really interesting to me because like you could, you could start at the surface level and say, ah, this is an A section. This is a B section. Like, okay, right. well, but what, what makes it work? And I think yeah. that that's getting a little bit um, further under the hood. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So, so then, yeah. And well, and, I was so I've been listening to before we dive into this Victoria piece, which mm -hmm. is so choice. Yeah, I highly recommend picking one up. Do you know what that? <laughs> do you know what that's from? What, what I that? just quoted. No, you got to tell me. It's from Ferris Bueller's Day Off oh. when he's talking about the car. He's like, "It is so choice. 
I love driving it. If you have the means, I highly recommend picking one up. <laughs> oh man, I, I I have seen segments, but not all of the movie, and I feel embarrassed by that. Oh, don't feel embarrassed. It don't. I mean, my parents say <laughs> they got the idea for my name from Ferris's best friend Cameron. So, so it's just something that I've had to watch and will continue to watch because <laughs> of like, hey, it's me. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's really funny. Anyway, um, but this Victoria piece, before we dive into that, I was listening to, I've been listening to um, the the album by Trinity College Choir, Stephen Layton conducting of Owen Park's collected works. Yeah. Man, I I don't know what it is. That dude's music just like hits in the right. It slaps, as the kids say. <laughs> His music slaps. It does, and it's it is so Renaissancean in its conception. Mm-hmm. And I just have I don't know. There's few composers that I feel like their compositional voice just is me. Mm-hmm. And there's something about his counterpoint and his form that is so tightly constructed. And I've dissected it and tried to look at. And so I've I've got some of his scores and I've been studying them. And mm-hmm. the the way he intertwines these lines into it's this really simple line. It's very chant like in a particular passage, but how he interweaves that with a different part motivically but then the harmony gets really complex but then it it just kind of melts from section to section from place to place but the form is such that it's always really tightly held together even when he has these really completely differing ideas and I think it's because I I hadn't been able to think about it in the terms that you were talking about but it's it's what you said it's those stitch patterns that are consistent throughout and developed in a certain way and you know okay he well he flips it upside down here but it's it's still the same stitch pattern because of because of how he approaches it or or departs away from it and it's been really cool i love that yeah yeah and and well and even not to be like weirdly like fangirling on the air but even your pieces like the the bluebird piece that jeswaldo six just released a video with and the singing bowl that we've done there's all kinds there there's such clear formal uh like benchmarks and stitch patterns that and and i think i think honestly this is bold but counterpoint well okay all of it but counterpoint and form are two big indicators of composers who really know their craft. Mm. Because I've I've heard I I I was I've been picking music for um I'm really excited Sound of Ages and Spanish Fork High School choirs have been selected for ACDA Utah. Nice. So that's really fun. And so I've been pick, putting the program together for my high school students and been looking, and I'm not going to name composers and, and call them out, but I was listening to this one piece, and it had some really cool 
colors and textures, but there's this sense, and I and I had my uh, a student who's an assistant conductor, and I let them kind of walk through. They're, they're seniors, and they're usually wanting to study music of some kind in college, and so I was talking to this student and, and asking her, like, what do you think about here's the pieces I'm thinking about, here's the scores, listen to them, read it, like follow along and just give me your knee jerk reactions. And this one particular piece, she didn't really like very much. She's like, it just doesn't seem to go anywhere. And I was like, that's the exact same concept that I had. And I've, I have a master's degree and Mm -hmm. she's in high school and she's a choir nerd, but she doesn't, she barely took music theory class for the first time, this basic theory class. And she thinks the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Liz, my wife, who's not musically trained at all, can say the same thing about pieces, where she's just like, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. And so there's something about form that is innate in us that we can recognize of, this piece doesn't go anywhere. But then you yeah. get into minimalism, and you're like, well, wait, how does minimalism go somewhere? It goes somewhere. It's so weird. I don't understand yeah. it. Yeah. Oh my. Anyway. Well, I get. I was thinking back to Billy Collins when I heard him talking about poetry, and he was saying things like, "Well, you know, stanza roughly means room mm. in Italian, and a poem is like a tour of a house that you built, moving from one room to another room to another room." Yeah. And I thought, dang, I love that description musically too. But it totally. But what you're describing, I think, is sometimes the difference between saying, "Okay, in in a room or in a house, you have you know decor, and then you have structure. You have like the stuff that's inside of the walls that hold your building up." Yeah, and I think that um, you know timbre is an essential quality of music and you want the tone color and texture and everything to not just be interesting, but to serve the design and purpose of a piece. Um, But I think it's really easy for people who are writing music, for example, to plop their hands down on the piano and find a really cool chord and say, Oh my gosh, what a cool chord. Um, And imagine if everybody was, you know, alternating between singing and whispering this cluster chord and like, oh, isn't that cool? And I think that's a little bit like, okay, cool. So what color of paint do you have on the wall? That's fine. But the question of what makes it hold together, what makes it go somewhere? Yeah. Like you were saying, that's a lot, that has more to do with like the stuff in the side of the walls, which is like, okay, why does the house stand up? Yeah. And architecturally how do you how are you going to move from one nicely decorated room to another nicely decorated room to the next and then make it full circle yeah like what what explains that that tour you know yeah and i think it does come from counterpoint but it's uh it's all the in a way it's kind of like the the um gnarly stuff on the inside of the walls that's a little that just takes more effort i guess but it's funny you brought up those pieces singing bowl and and bluebird because singing bowl has kind of a specific formal plan right that i I thought about bluebird very intentional yeah and bluebird doesn't 
Like I would right. describe it as punctuation form, which mm-hmm. I think is basically what you've got in the Victoria piece too, which is like, okay, you've got a text. It's made up of phrases. It has a meaning of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, um, not that I'm saying like, I'm, I'm going to tell you what the poem means. I, let me, let's see. It has like, it's a, it has diction and syntax and yeah. it has all the properties of the language that it's made of. And if I were to start, you know, if I had six people standing in a room who started saying the poem out loud, but they happened to be singing instead of speaking, what would I do to make that poem, you know, lift off the page? Uh, I don't. I couldn't tell you what the form of the piece was, but I think I could tell right. you like how I tried to make it feel like it got from the beginning to the end, inevitably. Right. What it what keeps it from falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, how it responds to the punctuation in the text and that that kind of stuff equals yeah effectively the form yeah and it holds together so well and it goes somewhere like it all goes somewhere it all has form even though it is i mean the singing bowl like you said very intentionally is from one edge of the bowl to the other and it has that really clearly and intentionally but it doesn't have to have that ABA clarity to have good form, just like we've been talking about. Yeah. So you mentioned the Victoria. Yeah. This very, very cool, cool piece. Um, should we play the recording of it? Why, yes, you should. Okay. Ding.
So, initial thoughts, Drew. Well, if we want to talk form, you know, the the piece basically has an kind of an A, B, C, B design. Right. You go all the way till the the sign. Um, and then the, so that it starts, it starts with the Amicus Meus, and then you get to the big cadence at homicidium murder. Yeah. Talk about intense. That's an intense oh, cadence right there. Yeah. It's... And then you, you have a B section, which is um, conceptually different. And then you get to the little duo and then you repeat the B section. Um, how much does that tell you about why the piece holds together? I don't know. Right. Ah, it's an ABCB. Yes. Now I, now so, I understand this piece. <laughs> so clearly it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to, to understand, <laughs> well, to understand the form, the first thing I did is I read a, read the text. Smart. That's what I do. Yeah. And so, you know, the sign by which my friend betrayed me. Yeah, was a kiss. He yeah. he whom I kiss, that is he, hold him fast. He who committed murder by a kiss gave this wicked sign. The unhappy wretch repaid the price of blood and in the end hanged himself. Yeah, whoa, just like so violent. Yeah, it had been better for that man if he had never been born. Yeah. Okay, so the first thing that struck me is that the sign by which my friend betrayed me. Yeah. That's, you know, like Isaiah speaking messianically, right? It's like speaking right. first person. Yeah. And how does that happen? Well, the piece opens with the pure upper voices. Yep. Which is very you know? kind of angelic and, and innocent. Yeah which yeah. is kind of what you would think of as that type of kiss being very angelic and innocent. Well, no, I, I think it's the it's Jesus's own voice. He's speaking. Mm. That pure angelic oh, yeah. voice, right? It's like the sign by which my friend betrayed me, me. I'm talking to you people. Right. And in, and then in bar 5, I think it's great that the first time we get the 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 me that's being referred to by the betrayal it's a single voice alone <laughs> yeah in the alto it's just that's beautiful but then you get you get to the first significant punctuation mark which is that um colon at yeah the end of the first system and then it shifts and yeah. i think in a way it's kind of uh it's as though judas iscariot was entering the room and yeah it right? changes characters the character well and it does the 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 text is it changes characters as well him he who i kiss and then it's yeah it shifts to the to the tenor bass in this kind of really cool well and i think it's i don't know if this is significant but to me it is where you have this you don't have you have uh contrapuntal in the sense that it is I mean, it's only two voices, but this this polyphonic not happening at the same time texture with mm -hmm. the women. Mm -hmm. And then when the men come in, though, at seven 
or whatever, yeah. eight, that it, it's perfectly homophonic between the two voices. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting. Well, it's as though it's as though you were writing a line for a character to say in a singing right. opera, right? Like this is a yeah. character's line. He whom I kiss arrest him. Yeah. And so, th- I mean, there it is. There's Judas. And in both cases, you have the speaker sort of personified by a configuration of voices. And then it does open into the full four voices, which I think of as having established the character. Now we're going to fill, Here's out, the scene. fill out the 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 harmony and thicken. Yeah, the, the scene. Yeah. Um, but to me, it's just very clear that we're getting characterization of those two speakers and then at 14 at the next colon the next big punctuation mark and so he's writing the way that you know he's writing breath the way that you would breathe if you were reading the text out loud yeah which is so amazing i just think that 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 right there but before we go on i think that right there just seeing it in the first 14 bars sets up sets up the listener's mind to anticipate the rest of it. And yeah. then that yes. that contributes to then what what holds it together of, oh, okay, well, each... I'm listening to a conversation. I'm listening to this dramatic event, f- one phrase at a time, character by character, sentence by sentence. Uh, and and that that story, the text has a natural form and flow and climax and and resolution and so i'm expecting then that the music will have the same right well and the next two next three stanzas sort of spoken units of text are in a third person kind of commentary yeah who committed murder by a kiss gave this wicked sign unhappy the unhappy wretch repaid the price of blood and in the end hanged himself so now we're talking about people in the third person yeah and i think you feel that in the music too where it sort of shifts and it's almost like the greek chorus or something is now going to comment yeah on the action and the so at 14 where it's um uh he who committed murder by a kiss except that in latin the the grammar is reversed and you basically it's like Hugh who by by a kiss committed kiss, murder committed murder yeah right because amplavit homocidium at the end of that line well commit murder that's the you know the twisting of the knife right and you see it in the counterpoint but that's where you start getting these melismas um the the natural emphasis even mm-hmm. the sort of the golden mean within the phrase level, right? It's like, and then it, yeah. then it drops down to the cadence on homocidian. Yeah. Um, so now we're, now we're in that commentary and I think you can feel the difference in the, the way that the voices are now not characterizing individual speakers. Yeah. And that leads us right up to the big cadence at the end of homocidian. Yeah into that like just yeah and it's well when yeah anyway continue i don't know my that thought was not fully developed so i'm just gonna but other than just like that the rest of them don't have that 
perfect open cadence yet. We've, we haven't really had that moment of clear, uh, like clarity of openness where there's not another voice part who's entering while they're finishing, you know, the kind of overlapped phrases. We don't have any thirds or anything like that yet. Oh up to, yeah. Uh, up, up to this. Uh, yeah. And then we have it at yeah. almost idiom. All of a sudden we, we have this, this, yeah. whoa. Okay. So this is a clear. Well, it's, I mean, think about it. reading this passage. If you were standing there and you're going to read the passage out of the Bible to people listening to you, uh, I guess this is not literally, this is a poetic rendition, but if you were reading the text yeah. and you said committed murder. Yeah. Dun, full stop, dun, right? You, you're gonna, well, yeah. yeah, I know, <laughs> and right? yeah. You're gonna, you want those two words to just like completely knock people over. And I think, how do you do that? Well, you're going to do it. It's obviously it's a cadential moment, um, but you're not going to color that. And you're gonna, right. You know, with with a third, you're going to pull that into just perfect focus, make it so exposed. Right, because it further accentuates and punctuates it. And think how you would conduct that as a director. Oh yeah. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna pause. You're gonna lay that out. And the, the whole ensemble is going to breathe before you go into the next phrase. I mean, yep. I don't, I, I'm not, if I were imagining this, I can kind of imagine <laughs> that, that being conducted that way. Right. Right. Uh, and then it picks up with Anne Felix, unhappy, unlucky, poor wretch. Right. Right. Um, the commentary continues, but it's interesting that the the bass, the lowest voice drops there for seven bars or six bars or something like that. Yeah. And I feel like what that does is it, in a way, when we're talking form, what does it do? It, it The change in texture signals to us, in a way, a change of form, too. Mm-hmm. It's, the commentary is continuing, but now we've reached a different node in the commentary and And it and it has a different tone. There's Mm -hmm. a completely different tone of voice. Like, I mean, when you think of you know murder and betraying with a kiss, those are like some seriously violent, dark Mm -hmm. things. And then it shifts a little bit to be like unlucky, unhappy, almost like a there's like a hint of mercy in it. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit like uh, the moral of the story, mm, right? Right. That poor wretch. And yeah. then, I mean, look at how it transitions into the um, the duo. So we get the suspendi. Suspe- I can't yeah. ever say it without trying to do it in French, but um, <laughs> I, I mean, a terrible. Terrible pun that there's a suspension on suspending. No, yeah, on it's self, in, on it, self self suspending. But anyway, it, it, no, it's it. I don't think that that's a, a, a accident at all. This no. like very like pronounced octave jump in the tenors, yeah, and then you resolve it down by step, 
in a suspension talking about him hanging himself. It's just like, yeah, it's brilliant writing. Yeah. It really is just yeah. so brilliant. But then look at how it pulls back te- texturally. Yeah. At the bonum. It had been better for that man if he had never been born, which is like the the most condemning thing you can ever say. Right? Yeah. And that's, again, back to the words of Christ and back to this soprano alto alone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thing. And it it's... So 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 there again where where he's being true to those character voices. Um Yeah. And and then and then he kinda and then he goes back and repeats the that B section. Yeah. It's interesting to me that the duo there on Bonum is comprised it, it opens with these falling intervals. Mm after the other sections had been initiated with rising intervals. Rising intervals. Mm. So it's kind of like they have they have something structurally in common, those first three units. And then this yeah. unit is maybe responding the other way by doing something in the opposite way. And sometimes I feel like, you know, um, you know, what's the I mean, you can talk about text painting and try to say, oh, well, this is this is literally X or Y. But sometimes you look at it and say, well, this is the inverse or the opposite of what we've heard before. And it doesn't have a clear like meaning meaning, but it is very it's clearly discernible from a musical toolbox perspective like, oh, Previously, something went up and now it goes down. I can tell that that's different. Previously, we had four different parts singing and it sounded thick and intense. Now we have two parts singing and it sounds thin and quiet and intense in a different way. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think that there's a lot of that. Um, and when I, you know, when I, I first started composing, my first piece that I ever wrote was performed by BYU-Idaho Collegiate Singers and I look back and think, whoa, how did I do that? <laughs> it was like the most beginner's luck thing ever. Or as uh, uh, Liz Wiseman, she's a really uh, famous, she was the CEO of, uh, crap, I can't remember which big oil yeah, company. She's the, and she's the Multipliers author. Yeah, and, Multipliers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Liz Wiseman talk, has a book called Rookie Smarts, and it's, it talks about like you you have these intuitions sometimes rookies and beginners luck redefined and like kind of quantified into well you do there is rookie smarts and sometimes then as you get more and more and more into a field you put limits on yourself whereas yeah. if you try to continually let yourself have rookie smarts anyway and so, but I got, but after my rookie smarts wore off, wore off after one piece, then <laughs> I caught myself in the trap of always just trying to, well, what is this phrase? What is, how do I paint this text? Or how does this word, what's the text emphasis that needs to happen? And I, I got caught in the weeds and I could not think of this larger picture form of thinking. Sometimes, sometimes the music has to, act how the music needs to act and you have to separate it from the text yeah. 
uh, a little bit oh, instead yeah. of instead of just like okay well this word needs to be shaped like this and then this word because otherwise you will you'll just wander yeah. and so I think that this is a really good example of that of I think it it, it reaches that level of what we would call holy crap that's genius mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. it does both because it show it shows that they've thought about that form of okay now these these lines descend because the rest of them had ascended and maybe he did that on purpose to show at this moment he could have these descending things of you know Judas has fallen and mm-hmm. better that he had not been born or whatever you know so you you have those two things converging but they don't have to in order to be well constructed no, they don't have to, but um, my guess is, you know, at some point along the way, he said, well, um, how am I going to make this different from the three entrances that we heard previously? The first one relies on that prominent mi- mi- uh, minor third. The second one, if you're looking at hum, huck malum fecit, um, doesn't, but it's the you could argue it's just a continuation of the first and then the next clear break at Enfelix, same thing. We're back to that minor third. And so I think you rising minor third and you thought, well, okay, let's, let's go down so you can hear the contrast. Right. I feel like things have to work musically and textually. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, why are we singing this at all? If we can't make it better than the, a reading of the text, right. Then we're, or not better, but distinctive or sort of like valuable on its own terms, then we should just stop right. writing, stop bothering. Um, <clears throat> yeah, think- and, and you know, with that, you think about it. Well, yeah, I was going to literally say the same thing you just said, so I will not <laughs> say it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, and you could think of it as, anyway. <laughs> oh, my. But that's what, and I think that's the thing that gets overlooked in terms of so if if you're looking at this from a compose or from a conductor standpoint, you're looking for those benchmarks to see okay well, well okay well let's start let's start from the con the conception of the piece on. We've already talked about maybe how a composer conceives these things. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're writing a piece now in today's world and you're wanting to draw upon the primal like natural world golden mean type concept of form Mm -hmm. you're thinking of these types of things of okay well this section and then this section and then this rises so then this should fall and you, you have the this world of opposites you're trying to juggle and you have textures you're trying to shift, but they're not really that extreme. When you think of a shift in texture and your 21st century ears are thinking of film score, you think of, you know, like the movie Inception, and it's just this, like, super dense thing, and then at the end you have literally two notes on the piano, two octaves apart. That is like a texture shift. That's like a texture whiplash. Yeah. Whereas, like, the texture shift with Victoria is much more subtle, but it doesn't make it any more, any less significant. So, you know, as a composer, you're thinking about all these things, right? How do how do you how do you put these primal building blocks together? What what are and and how do you 
like let's say if there's is there a piece that you're working on that you're trying to work through some of these things and and how, how you don't have to be specific in terms of the music but what thoughts are you having and how are you juggling these things yeah well i think that question of what makes this thing not fall apart is yeah is genuinely interesting and then saying you know what what's the dna of this piece yeah when you when you're talking about the beginner's luck i've i have felt that too where sometimes i've written a thing i was like oh man that just came together why why'd that work um but then but every piece i think especially in our in our concept of music now each piece is kind of like its own little solar system or it's mm. a little organism and you have to say okay what are the the units that matter in this piece what is this piece about musically right you know, maybe it's about seconds yeah or fourths or whatever um you know what are the the building blocks and then say and then it's a question of saying okay how can i make the the ending feel like an inevitable completion of the beginning how do you get how do you get from the beginning through the middle to the end and the you know the there's different ways to answer that question we have a lot of different thoughts about that than victoria would have because in that era what were your materials they were singers where were they singing in church and what were why were they singing because it was the service the service and that answers like half of the questions for you right Mm. and and like what what uh pitches are you going to use the ones that are acceptable as consonances and carefully managed dissonances of that century right right and so now it's like everything's fair game there are no right answers for anything and so you have to sort of instill in your imagination some rules it's a little bit like writing a fantasy novel and say what's the rule what's the rules for this universe how does this yeah. how does this universe work what's permissible yeah but and you can't do it without them like i think that's the thing that a lot of new music students and composers including myself 10 years ago didn't understand is that you actually the more of those you have actually the better it's going to work out yeah because because then you can really explore the depths of smaller cells and it holds the stitch patterns are then more clearly similar and hold together stronger yeah yeah i mean to a point but well i think there's a lot of like i call it gray music like where you sort of like you mix all you take all the, the colors of paint that you have at your disposal at your disposal and you just sort of mix them together and you just kind of get this gloppy gloppy gray yeah and you know um you hear a lot of gray music or you yeah. hear a lot of like surface level sparkles mm-hmm. um yeah you know, that that don't feel like they like you said before like they're going anywhere or that it it moves you from beginning to end and i don't know i mean everybody wrestles with that same stuff and hats yeah. off to people that find novel ways to solve that i i feel like yeah i can't uh 
you know tell anybody what to do with their music all i can try to do is work on my chops and try to figure it right. out on my own <laughs> yeah exactly one well, as a and i think that's what takes us to you know as a as a singer you, you well as a conductor and a singer so i guess you just lump that all into like the performer as the performer your job is to is to make sure that those things are being honored if you don't if you don't give any sort of if you don't placate at all to that cadence at murder in terms if you just if you don't do a poco writ and you don't take a big breath before but you just kind of move on mm-hmm. then then you haven't you know there there's always this battle between like oh this is the comp- what the composer wants and then this is the conductor's interpretation mm-hmm. but there there is a point of convergence where if you don't if all parties don't come together on this thing, then you're missing something. Even if there's no text, like for whatever reason, the music is coming together at this moment or doing this thing. And if the composer misses it, if the conduct, excuse me, if the conductor misses it, if the singers miss it, then it's, it's just missed. So the conductor, for me, I think that my job is to, than to look through and see well what text is what text is happening here what what is wh- where does it feel like it comes to this kind of formal closure before it moves on to the next section what and and then in this case with me and you I can just say Andrew what were you thinking here mm-hmm. which is the kind of like hey Siri kind of answer yeah. which is so <laughs> dumb but but in in the when the composer's dead and all of their biographers are dead, and all of the people who wrote treatises on them are dead, then then you have to dig. And I think that that, therein lies the nuggets and the secrets and the the fun and the, the, it's so fulfilling when you say, oh, this is totally how this works, and this is, okay, now I can can really bring this out, and I I can really make this important and I can make this you know this doesn't have to be every note prominent this just kind of moves through and this takes us to this next section and this is a big finishing point and then this comes back so let's do this part louder and whatever you know I think that there's all those kinds of little things that the conductor is trying to do to make sure that the form is realized by the audience and and the singers for that matter well, I feel like if the composer's doing the composer's job, then it sort of tees up the director in a really flattering way. Yeah. Right? It's like uh, if I build an interesting house and then you're the one that is, well, I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but if it's like if I've got, if I've put the right stuff on the page and you're the one that's going to like bring the house into existence in the moment of the performance and lead people through it, if yeah. I've given you uh, a sound foundation and good blueprints, then you're going to have no problem not making yeah. it just to like what I would have wanted specifically. You would say, ah, check this room out. I really like this room and I'm going to show you everything about this room. Mm. And I, I feel like that's what a, a good piece of music does is it, is it leaves the composer's hands and then it beco- it belongs to the people who are listening to it and interpreting mm. it yeah um you know like in the in this victoria like 
if you didn't make something out of commit murder, <laughs> then I would just think, well, why, why did you choose this text in the first place or this piece, this setting in the first place? Good heavens. Right. But, but right. you will, you know, and you yeah. look at the, look at the, the lines on the page, like, oh, these are well-constructed lines. This is um, a beautiful, intense, gripping setting. Yeah. And, any it's you know handing this to a conductor is just saying ah you know you, you'll know what to do yeah exactly yeah the end warm i feel great about it <laughs> yeah and we could talk i mean maybe we can do it in another episode but to talk about then how this piece fits in in the larger form of you know the tenebrae responsories because there's sure there's you know there's nine of these for holy for for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, each respectively in Holy Week. So there's like 27 responsories that fit together. This is the first one of Thursday. Like this opens the entire Tenebrae responsories Holy Week. And and so, you know, you could talk about too how he ends on that suspended half cadence and mm-hmm. it goes right into the next one, which is about, right. which is more about Judas, kind mm-hmm. of like a, now let me tell you more about who this Judas guy was, and and what he did, and and I I don't know I just think that I'd love to I think the the micro versus the macro, and I'd love to maybe do form part two because we could talk about large, like large form pieces like something like Path of Miracles. Oh yeah, it's like each movement is fifteen minutes, but then that all works together to make this hour long thing amazing versus something like even something like a um uh I don't know how familiar you are with Le Bestiaire. It's a art song cycle by Poulenc. Hmm. It's like five art song pieces and each one's like I think the longest one is two minutes, maybe three. Oh, but yeah, some of them are like yeah. a minute and a half. So you have this then really short form, and how does this one work though? Because it works just as well. So how do you? I would love to talk about that. I think that'd be super cool for form part two. That sounds way fun. Okay. Okay. What is this? Who sponsored this episode? Um, I think this episode was sponsored by my plant on my desk. Look at that beautiful plant brought to you by Earth. This is a, this is a weeping fig. <laughs> How fitting for talking about Judas. And <laughs> brought to you by Drew's desk plant, the weeping fig. Yes. Okay. See you, everyone. We'll see you next time on Early Music Monday and the Andrew special form part two coming at you. Hopefully. You got it. Outro. Outro, outro, outro. 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 <laughs> outro. <laughs>